0: So today we're going to talk about something which is a question which many people struggle with, and that is this whole area of Christian maturity. What does it mean? There's a whole bunch of waffle talked about it, so today we're going to get down to some specifics. But before we get there, and before we dive into the teaching, I wonder, have you ever asked yourself a question, once you get saved, why has God left you on earth? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just remove you from all of the dramas and the trials and the issues that you and I face and the troubles on earth? I mean, he could. Once he got safe, said, right, that's it. Boom, grab and exit. Right? Like Enoch. Just take him. Now, the most obvious answer is that we are left here to be Christ's ambassadors. That's one of the most obvious answers, right? His personal witnesses, his emissaries, that represents his kingdom and his values on this earth. And the reason for that is nobody is better qualified to tell a lost person how to be found and forgiven than those who have once been lost. My brother was lost for 14 years, as you know. One of them is a heroin addict. Now he spends his life telling people that is not the way to go. It ends it a amiss. Some of you were lost in other areas. And nobody else is better qualified to help people get in the right direction than when you've gone down that. I've often been driving down the road and people are coming down and they're sort of like meandering around and I've gone down there, done a U turn, come back, say, hey, hey! It does not, that's a dead end down there. And so they typically turn around and go back because nobody wants to waste their life. Now, there is another reason why God left you here. Not so obvious sometimes, and that is that he may shape you into the image of his son Jesus Christ on a process that leads to spiritual maturity. Now, sometimes the process of spiritual growth is both long and painful. I want you to know that spiritual growth can be long and painful, and in route to maturity, we all, every one of us in this room, will spill our milk, we'll say things that we shouldn't say. And we'll fail to act as we should, every one of us in this room. Sometimes we'll throw temper tantrums like a toddler. Sometimes we're very easily upset. Have you ever had a baby that's really fussy? Yeah, Really upset? Easy? Everything. everything and anything upset them. Sometimes we'll pout like preschoolers when we don't get our own way. Something doesn't go quite the way that we want it to go, so we're upset, we tick off and we pout. So other times, I don't know, this is probably not you, but we argue like teenagers. Ever seen teenagers going at it? <laughs> They've got endless and boundless energy to fight about anything and everything. doesn't matter what it is. And all the while, what should be happening is not what we're acting like that, but we should be conducting ourselves as mature believers, setting an example to those who are younger in the faith. Now, we may even have the knowledge of what to do, but we lack the will to do it. Right? Have you ever known what to do but said, oh, I'm not doing that? (laughs) And you knew It was the right thing. So even those of us who are walking down this journey to spiritual maturity have days when we feel, or your partner may feel like we're one of those terrible two tantrums, right? (laughs) But I'm not talking. Have you ever seen a kid do that? I heard a kid the other day, five years old, said, I'm not talking ever again. (laughs) They were so mad with their parents. I just... (laughs) Raise my eyes. So as parents, though, on the other hand, we are delighted when our children do grow through infancy, childhood, adolescence, and eventually into adulthood. That's the way it was meant to be. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father wants all His children to grow in their faith. But sadly, many Christians grow old without growing up. Let me just say it again. Many Christians grow old Sorry, that's a deaf language there. Without growing up. And there is a difference. Now in First Peter, as you know, we've been working away systematically through the book of First Peter. It's a brilliant book to study for any new Christian because it covers the lot. It co- there's nearly a topic that's hardly untouched in this area. 1 Peter 3, 18-12. The Apostle Peter is summing up what he sees as a kind of lifestyle, behaviors, and habits... Your habits are very important. You may not, you know, what's a habit? Well, actually, habits are very important. They epitomize Christian maturity. And he's going to fire them out very soon. Now, these virtues provide you and me with a measuring rod. The other day, I was at the garage. Once my thing was filling out the gas, I thought, what the heck? I'll oh, just pop the hood. <laughs> You'll be glad to hear that, Calvin, and just check the, uh, check the oil was in the right place on the measuring rod. Make sure it wasn't running low. It's been a while since I looked at that, right? So Peter provides a measuring rod for us to check our Christian maturity because people have some very strange ideas of what Christian maturity actually is. Now, these virtues we're going to look at are a tangible set of objective checkpoints. They are signs, and we can use these signs just like we use a dipstick, or like we use a measuring rule to test our own maturity in different areas of life. In fact, my wife was a plunket nurse for many years. Back up to the slide, sir, or where it is. Whoa! Now, many of you who've had kids know what these are, right? You know what these are? These are curves that, where your milestones are for your kids. So your kid at a certain age should be certain head circumference of whatever it may be. That's how you should be. There are measures, and every plunkett or every ch- newborn child, Josephine, would know, you've seen these, you can look at this, and at 26 weeks you should be probably exactly there. There's below and above, but you should be on that curve, and they want to get you into the middle of that curve. Now, in just five verses, Peter summarizes comments in the forms of nine marks of maturity. He nails them, solidly. Now remember that Peter's purpose though, in this section of his letter, is to describe their different behaviors the different lifestyle in relation to the world. And this list of Christian virtues flies flat in the face of the prevailing cultural norms. And it sets believers apart as God's holy people. That's holy, set apart. We're to be different in an unholy world. And yet again, before we dive into it, Peter ties this lifestyle of holiness to the hope that's consistent uh, a consistent anticipation of the reward that will come when Jesus returns. Now mature holy living can only come as we embrace Christ as our hope in hurtful times. So here it is, nine maturity checkpoints along the way. Firstly, 1 Peter, chapter three, verse eight. To sum up, I'm going to read it and then we'll dive. Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for evil, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for this very purpose, that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 10. For whosoever desires, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So let's dive in. Peter gives us these checkpoints towards maturity. But he starts with this phrase, to sum up. You may want to circle that, to sum up, the very first part. This is not to conclude his letter, but summing up his previous teaching where he's encouraging us believers to live with different attitudes and different actions. See, they were facing, these people, the battlefield of unjust treatment. Anybody ever felt that? Or unfair treatment by unjust governments, he talked about first. Then he talked about by unjust or unfair employers treating the employees poorly. And then thirdly, we looked at the third section, which was all about the struggles in married life. Remember? He talked all about those three sections. So Peter firstly sums up five building blocks for unity in verse 8, as Christians live like resident aliens in the world. Here we are. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, three, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. In other words, not the me-first attitude. It's all about me. First, number one, a like-minded unity. It says, let all be harmonious. To sum up, let all. That's everyone. That's you. That's me. That's in your family. That's in your marriage. Let all be harmonious. That is God's will. You might want to write down Psalm 133 verse 1. That's right. This quality refers to a oneness of heart. Not pulling in two different directions. See, let me just say this to you. The Greek word for two is die, D I. Die, if you have die vision. Two visions, you have division. Make sense? If you have two different visions for your marriage, you got a problem. If you've got two different visions in your company, you got a problem. Let all be harmonious, oneness of heart, similarity of purpose and agreement on the major points. Now, unity is not the same as uniformity, where everybody looks and acts the same. Cookie cutter. That God loves variety. I love it. I look in my garden, there's all sorts of different flowers and scents and shapes and sizes. I love that. That's like God. Nor is it the same as unanimity, where everybody agrees 100% on everything. That's not what nobody's talking about. There were many types of Christians from many different types of backgrounds. And Peter knew that in Jesus Harmony is possible. Now, just as different notes form different chords to make beautiful harmonies on the keyboard or on the guitar, so Jesus calls us to work together and live together in harmony for God. Now, the secret of this kind of harmony is not to focus on petty peripherals. And peripheral differences, but to focus on the common ground. Actually, the, we had a, a verse in our family for a long time. It said, let us concentrate on the things that promote harmony. Because it's really easy. Have you noticed that with kids? You always tell them what they're doing wrong. Now, they need to be told when they're wrong. But you also need to balance that with what they're doing right. And to, even in your marriage, it's easy to find the things your partner's not doing well. But what about the things that are? What are you doing to promote harmony on that first point? Unity. So, the secret of this kind of harmony is not to focus on petty peripherals, but to focus on the common ground of Jesus and his kingdom and his goals. We can find unity in that. Number two, the second checkpoint uh, is mutual interest. Mutual interest. In other words, be sympathetic. Sympathetic. To sum up, let it all be, the second word was sympathetic. That means literally to feel with somebody. I was with somebody this week, I was hurting, because they were hurting. It caused a knot in my stomach. When we're in close fellowship with believers like Peter had in mind, we, we will naturally affect each other emotionally. Rejoicing, as Jesus said, when you get a win, it's great to have a win, and Feeling the pain, weeping when others weep. See, we'll have a mutual interest in each other's well-being. When that happens, there'll be an absence of competition when the husband competes with the wife or the brother and the sister. There'll be a lack of jealousy and there won't be envy. That's what it's talking about here. The third checkpoint is friendship and affection. The word can be translated as brotherly, brotherly. comes from the word phileos or uh, phileos, love, true companionship. It says here, again, to sum up, let all be brotherly, that's you, be brotherly. Are you behaving in a brotherly manner? That refers to an affectionate friendship. It's It's getting at the loyalty, should be just as strong as it is in one's natural family, when, when we're loving fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I was reading this week a poet, Samuel Coleridge, in his poem, Youth and Age, wrote this Friendship is a sheltering tree. I'm not like that. How true that is. When the searing rays of the sun's adversity burn their way into your life, there's nothing quite like a sheltering tree or a friend that helps. And gives relief and cool shade. Now when you have this quality, your branches reach out over the lives of others. To give them shelter. To give them rest. To give them shade. Relief and encouragement. Beneath those branches, you're refreshed. Now, dare I ask friend, who rests beneath your branches? The fourth checkpoint is a heartfelt compassion. A heartfelt compassion. This is encapsulated in the word kind-heartedness. To sum up, let all be kind-hearted. Paul uses exactly the same term in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another. That's not Jacinda's words, all right? Straight from the Scriptures, be kind. Tender-hearted. There it is. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other. Whoa. Okay. Not being hard-hearted and not forgiving. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, this heartfelt compassion is closely associated with forgiveness. And it emphasizes the actions taken to reach out to those who are hurting. Now, as a good shepherd, Jesus... Looked upon humanity as lost sheep. He saw them scattered. Sheep aren't supposed to be scattered. They're supposed to be together in a flock. He saw them frightened. And he saw them hungry. And what he saw pulled at his heartstrings. Matthew 9.36. He saw the crowds. And what happened? He said, tough luck. He said he had compassion for them. Same root word. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, here's the point. Here's the point. Just as hurting people touch the hearts of Jesus, just as hurting people touch the hearts of Jesus, they should also touch our hearts. Or perhaps our heart is not in the place it needs to be. If they do, it's definitely... A a, a, a checkpoint or a sign of spiritual growth. If the hearts that tugged on Jesus and the situations that tugged on his heart, if they affect yours, that is a sign of spiritual maturity. If there's a callousness there or a hardness, maybe that's an area that we need to work on. Number five, the fifth checkpoint, is a spirit of humility. Humble in spirit, it says. To sum up, let everybody, or let all be, humble in spirit. Now, what does Peter mean there? He has in mind a deep down humility that nobody else can see. It's in our inner thought life. It's In our me first world, it's very hard to swallow. The first shall be last. It's very hard. One day I was in Hot Water Beach when I was a, a young whipperslipper. And... I don't normally have dreams of anything like this of spiritual significance. I just don't. My feet are firmly planted on the ground. But one day, I was there with my mama and my other brothers, and I had this ridiculous dream. There was, a, there was like a race, and I was in that race. And in those days, I was, if competitors here, I was off the charts the other side, hyper competitive. That's where I was back then. I'm ready at the race, ready to go. Hard out for it. Going for it. And then I felt something grab me by the shirt and was pulling me back and holding me back and holding me back and pulling me back and pulling me back. And And immediately these very loud words came into my head that day. And it was just this. didn't know what it meant. But it was this, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And I woke up in a sweat for whatever reason. Now, just put that to one side a minute. Anybody can dream that. That could have been the pizza I had last night, right? And the pepperoni. But that morning, I woke up to my Bible, straight there, and the very verse I was to read was, the first shall be last and the last shall be My whiskers stood on end. I go, oh God, this is a holy moment. What do you want to say to me? That, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, is a very hard thing to swallow in a me first world. That moment in my life gave me strength to say no when often I would have said yes. Humility does not mean that you negate your own abilities or your own worth. Never. Never. Nor does it inflate them. Actually, the Bible says have a sane estimate of your own abilities. Don't overcook them and don't put them down. Comparing is a very dangerous thing too, by the way, as I've said many times. There will always be people better than you, and you could feel depressed, and you'll always be better than some other people in some areas, and that way you could end up being prideful. So don't compare. You are only answerable to your master, to your maker. It'll free you from a lot of angst. Comparison. A Christian, though, a humble Christian, can honestly view his own or her own characteristics and ability with a thankfulness to God for what he's loaned them, those talents. But those talents aren't just to be used for you, they're to be used for the kingdom of God. Ask him, Lord, you've given me this talent. Master mechanic or PhD. How do you want to use this life? Or, yes, it provides my, my food for today and tomorrow, but how else do you want me to use my life? Humble people can encourage one another and rejoice in each other's successes. They never get envious about other people's success. Now, the first five virtues of a mature Christian in verse 8 relate to how we think and how we feel. I'm just summarizing this. How we think, light-minded, humble in spirit. How we feel, sympathetic, brotherly, compassionate. Now, Peter rounds out the last four characteristics in 9 through 11, relating to now what we do and what we say as mature Christians. These are outward actions, as they directly affect other people, and they, they're not mutually exclusive. Now, a person won't be able to feel compassion, feel affection, and feel sympathy if they're proud and contentious. You ever notice that? And a believer won't manifest virtuous words and deeds if their thoughts and their emotions are those of an immature Christian. It's all about me first. Mind and emotion and will, God wants to all grow together in a well-rounded and balanced character that's not easily irritated. And that'll lead to a mature Christian character and will be attractive to unbelievers. Number six. The sixth quality is a forgiving nature. If you claim or want to be a mature Christian, you've got to get this one down. Not returning evil for evil. Or insult for insult. But giving a blessing instead for you a call for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3.9 So this verse touches on all the important bases regarding forgiveness. Don't miss them. Notice here in that verse. The first thing that's said in that verse is, Refuse to get back or get even. If you're Richie, trigger finger Harry. Sorry, yeah? Huh? Trigger finger Tom. We haven't got a Tom at the moment. That's all good. So trigger finger Tom, that's not the right thing. Two, restraining from saying anything ugly in return. Very easy to let fly. Let's bring this down in our own homes. huh? That's what, this is where it matters. Returning good for evil. Not doing that we're Not returning evil for evil, but returning good for evil. That's a whole different ballgame. We just jumped up 10 levels there. Yeah, I may be able to shut it, but can I move good forward? Number four, keeping in mind that we're called to endure sometimes unfair and harsh treatment. That's what it comes with. Now, whenever the urge to get even comes into your life, it's important to realize that retaliation is a sign or a signpost of adolescence. While restraint, restraint is a mark of maturity. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you say you should do something. Refusing to exact revenge when we've been injured is the first thing. Replying with a blessing, either in word and deed, is something very, very different. It's on another plane. Now because we're being called to inherit a blessing, but because we do this, because Christ has secured this hope, and we can endure evil insults with patience and grace. Number seven, the seventh quality, and this is a toughie, is to have a controlled tongue. A controlled tongue. Keeping the tongue from evil. Verse 10, for whoever would love his life, love life, excuse me, and see good days must, here it is, number one, keep his tongue from evil, number two, his lips from deceitful speech. So Peter's actually here quoting from Psalm 34 verse 12 and 13. Here it is here, whoever of you loves life, next one, next slide, Here's, he's quoting directly from Psalm 34 here. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. That's a sign of maturity. Notice, though, notice, this quote immediately follows Peter's warning against lashing out in vengeance after you've been unfairly spoken of. So the thought is our words are more likely to get us in trouble when we're tempted to strike back, right? And the idea here is to get control of our tongues. A mature believer's tongue is tamed. It avoids gossip. Gossip is when you're not part of the problem or part of the solution. Keep out of it. It avoids slander. Thinking and talking disparagingly about somebody else when they're not there to defend themselves. That is slanderous. Crude language. Well, we all know what that is, but let me also add swearing. And for some of you, and for people like me sometimes, I'm going to stop saying shoot. It's a a habit we all have to keep our tongues under control, right? Every one of us in this room. And then the other one is all kinds of deception. In other words, not shading the truth, only telling partial truths. We have to be very careful of that in sales. Overpromising. This reminds me of another psalm about the tongue. And it's Psalm 141, verse 3. Here it is. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Remember, it was like a sentry, you know, like at Buckingham Palace where they stand outside. Before anything goes out, there's a guard. Set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. That prayer is worth praying every single morning before a stray word slips out from our tongues now once we pull the rein in our tongues we are then to spur ourselves on to the final two qualities which are purity and peace the eighth quality of a mature christian is a life of purity here it is it's turn away from evil and do good first peter 3:11 he must turn from evil And turn from evil. And Peter continues to quote from Psalm 34, verse 14. Turn from evil and do good. See, he's just quoting from there. Peter doubles down on his call for holy living. So purity from wickedness means turning away from evil um, inclinations and temptations. And every one of us in this room will be tempted. And are tempted. Turning away from evil inclinations and temptations and instead replacing these bad thoughts and habits with pure and positive ideas. So here's how that works. People's words are connected to their actions. And those who keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit have turned away from evil. Their God-honoring speech is then accompanied by action. And then they can do good, which is the final checkpoint is peace. It's a peaceful disposition. A peaceful disposition, which is seeking peace and pursuing it. First Peter 3, 11. This person must, mature, must turn from me or do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. We're a people who love sometimes as a as a country to, to argue and fight. We jump to our feet when we're wronged. We dig our heels and when we're challenged. And we're miffed when we get crossed. Now, whether it's over some minor non essential, may never that be the case in, in God's church. In essentials, we have unity. That's very important. In non essentials, we have liberty. But in all things, we have charity. Peter even said, the disputable matters. Do you know there's such a thing as disputable matters in the Bible? He says, you keep those things between you and yourself, don't create a big fuss. That's maturity. Keep the majors the majors. If you don't keep the majors the majors, you you major and minors, and that's a major mistake. Some, as you may reflect in your past life, you've noticed that some people fight over non essentials and skirmishes in relationships. And Christians can quickly rob each other of peace. On one hand, on the other hand. Instead of seeking peace and pursuing peace, they often pursue controversy or engage in open conflict. That's not what God wants. Instead, we should be the servants of the prince of peace and thereby reflect something of that peace in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families, and in our world that we work in and in our homes. Why should we do that? Why should we spur ourselves on to purity and peace? Verse 12 gives us the answer. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, the eyes of the Lord are emblematic of God's providential care for his people. doesn't matter whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament or today. Peter knew his Old Testament because, again, he was quoting directly from 2 Chronicles sixty-nine. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What a great reason for pursuing purity and peace. For the promise of God's providential care. Now that's quite a checklist. Nine marks of a mature Christian. But behind Peter's list of Christian virtues stands an important assumption. That believers can and should grow In their spiritual walk. So they consistently live in the light of God's word. A consistent life of unity. Does that describe your life? Mutual interest. Friendship. Affection and compassion and humility and forgiveness and self-control and purity and peace. This does not mean though that you will never fall short. We do. But when we do fall short, we acknowledge it and we allow God's grace to restore us and strengthen us again. So these nine virtues of spiritual maturity are general enough to encompass all areas of our life, but they're also specific enough to convict us that we are still soldiers in training. So, at the bottom of your outline there, I want to suggest, why not take a few minutes later on today to examine yourself under the yardstick of 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, To measure your own spiritual growth in those particular areas. And this is between you and God, but get alone. When you come to promoting unity, where are you? Are you a toddler? Or are you an adult? How about your interest in other people? Me, me, and my first. How about friendship and affection? Are you giving that to anybody else outside your own family? How about humility? Or forgiveness? Ooh, I think we could all work on that one, right? A controlled tongue. Do you ever say things that you regret? Would you like to have a cleaner and purer speech? Do you pursue peace? Peace? So when you look at those, the table of nine, ask yourself: In which area, if it's too hard like that, I'd suggest you do this: In which area am I least mature, or do I need to grow most? And then, what could you do to quote to grow up in that area? Let's pray. Father, you have called us to grow as Christians into, into all aspects of Jesus, who is our Savior. Holy Spirit, thank you that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness to escape the corruption of this world. Holy Spirit, help us to know you more personally, to grow in our faith and our habits, to become more like your son Jesus in our attitudes and our words and our deeds, Father, you've called us to be different and to stand out. As light in a confused and troubled world, as a city on a hill pointing people towards you. Would you help us live in a different way, Lord? In the name of the matchless Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.